your mess is mine. Uh, I'm going to change the title of the series on the last week. Uh, my mess is yours. Uh, yesterday, I had a chance to uh, go to the celebration of life for a friend. Um, actually, he was very instrumental in helping us get Shoal Creek started some 28 years ago. His name was Craig McElvain. Some of you know him. Most of you don't. We called him Mac. Uh, Mac was a, 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 a senior leader at Heartland Community Church down in Overland Park. Um, it's now moved out to Olathe. And, and Mac was um, a, a, a visionary guy and a, a guy who was, who was uh, just given to multiplication. And he, he liked to really fret, uh, spread fertilizer every place he could to, to make things grow. And so a couple of us from up north uh, found our way at Heartland one Thursday afternoon for a luncheon, and the next week uh, we found ourselves in Mac's office, and that started a relationship that birthed Shoal Creek Community Church. And so yesterday I had a chance to celebrate his life. He died of brain cancer. On April 16th, um, he's younger than me, uh, and, uh, and and I got a chance to listen to his sons. He has three sons, um, Kevin, Corey, and Scotty, who uh, memorialized their dad. Uh, and it was it was, I mean, it was a, a ball fest. I mean, uh, I mean, it's just like watching his sons talk about their dad and what he had meant to them was. Um, it's phenomenal, painful, and phenomenal at the same time. Um, it was one of those moments that that really does um, embody that song. Um, Scotty got up last to talk about his dad, and he first said that he sees his dad in both of his brothers. Mac had given them his blood. Mac and Laurel had invested uh, not only their biology, but, but everything else in those three boys, and, and they grew, and they have their own families now. So what it means to be a parent, really, is, is to give away your life selflessly, um, kind of like, you know, uh, being an unpaid intern, uh, as the, the comedian shared with us. You know, it's like, it's just, it, it's difficult but um, sitting through that celebration of life yesterday sort of was a preparation for today. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, but think about this for a moment as, as we think about um, being a parent. Uh, I, I have talked to many couples over my lifetime, and I'm not young. So when I say many, I mean many, who actually made a decision to have a child thinking that they would improve their relationship. Now, if you're on the other side of that decision, you know what kind of insanity that is, right? Adding a selfish, self-centered person who is going to require all of your attention to a relationship that's already struggling 
to a two adults who are trying to figure out how to love one another selflessly and now you add this black hole of attention it doesn't oftentimes go well uh, kids are are not meant to improve marriages uh, they're they're not um, the, the kind of addition to a family that will heal something but they are an addition to a family that will further tax it from being what God intended it to be. So, you know, there are a couple of uh, tools that I want to uh, expose today, uh, a couple of tools that I think are, are radically necessary for being a good parent. And, and you might be surprised here as you're thinking, well, I'm not a parent, and okay, or, or I'm, I'm not going to be a parent, all that kind of stuff. But you might be surprised when you hear the tools because they are absolutely necessary for your well-being no matter what state you're in. You see, oftentimes uh, as we enter into a relationship and, and we commit ourselves a man commits himself to a woman and he says he's going to love her for the rest of his life. And all those wonderful things that people say on stages like this spend, you know, countless number of dollars for things that just waste away really quickly. And come to grips with the fact that when life hits, when life lands, all of those things get put to a test. And as those things get put to a test, we discover that most of us enter into life without the necessary tools to have what Jesus offered us. Jesus comes along and he, he delivers, like in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the first book in the second half of the Bible. It, it's like the Magna Carta, the, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. For everything that Jesus taught is found in those three chapters. And then he begins to unpack those truths to those around him. It creates lots of conflict. As Sean talked about last week, it creates lots of conflict with religious leaders of that day. They didn't particularly care for Jesus because they had packaged this idea of a relationship with God in a certain set of rules and rituals. And when Jesus came along and blew that little box up, it made him their enemy. But there were a few people who got the message. And I mean just a few. When we get to the end of Jesus' life, there are maybe 120 people who are following Jesus after the, the three and a half years of his public ministry and really 18 months of, of investment into the lives of, of a, a group of families that had gathered around him. Out of that came a guy that most of us, uh, at least know his name. Uh, some people call him Paul. Some people call him the Apostle Paul. Um, he's, he's liked and hated by many people, but he ends up being used by God to write 13 of the, the letters, sometimes referred to as books, in the second half of the Bible. 
It's the, the large majority of them, the, the, the writer of the, the biggest piece of it. And, and so this guy, Paul, um, as following Jesus, he did not necessarily find it a joyous path. Well, maybe that's wrong. It was a, it, there was joy in it, but it was a difficult path. Not unlike parenting, really. There is a lot of joy in parenting. I had a chance to go after that celebration of life yesterday down to Olathe to watch two of my grandchildren compete in softball. Uh, it was a rather painful experience, but um, we were there, and my son and daughter-in-law and daughter and son-in-law, because I had two, ki- two grandkids of different families that play on the same team, so I got you know, two for the price of one thing going on there. And, I mean, you'll buy that any day as a grandparent when you have nine grandkids, you know? I mean, that's like, that's like golden, you know? Uh, but there's a certain joy in, in watching my kids coach their kids and watching my kids encourage their kids. Uh, just, just a great sense of uh, pride in watching your kids be successful as parents. So there's joy, but there's a lot of pain in that path. It wasn't easy. It was bloody and, you know, like that guy had ran out of curse words, same here, you know. Invented new curse words, you know. Tried to come up with things to express my deep anger and frustration at my kids who I thought were idiots at times. Paul had that same thing going on in his life. Yeah, that's very, very same thing going on deep in his life. And he writes two letters in the second half of the Bible to the same city, a place called Corinth. Still exists today. If, if you were to go to Greece uh, and you were to go to Athens and then travel to the northwest a bit, you, you could get to the city of Corinth. And it's, uh, it, it, there's some ruins there that, that represent the, the early city. That, that Paul was writing to. And he wrote two letters because the first letter was not received well. I, he wrote 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians contains one of the most quoted books or passages in the entire Bible. You know what I'm talking about? It's the love passage out of 1 Corinthians 13. You often hear it in weddings. You know, it's, it's love is patient, love is kind. You know, you, you always hear that sometimes read in that. One, one of the, a beautiful passage. And, and he wrote that to the Corinthians, but for some reason, that first letter did not set well with the Corinthians. They didn't like it, so he had to write a second letter. And we don't have their response. You know, we, it would be great if we could find the response of the Corinthians, because they communicated in letters in those days. They didn't you know, didn't have a text or, you know, they weren't on some app that they were, you know, back and forth WhatsApp or whatever. They, they, they wrote letters and they wrote them on sort of these, this, this uh, uh, animal skin or, or parchment or sometimes plants that have been uh, piled together as sort of the early paper and stuff. And, and, and they wrote it back and forth and it took a long time for the, the news to get from one place to the other. But apparently... They didn't like what Paul said. So he writes a second letter, and near the end of the second letter, in 1 Corinthians 12, in 2 Corinthians 12, 
um, Paul starts uh, pulling rank, in a sense. He, he begins to let them know what it has cost him to spiritually parent the Corinthians. It, it hasn't come at a, at a small cost. It's come at a great cost. And he, he, he goes through a lot of that. And if you want to read the second Corinthians, and especially in chapters 11 and 12, he goes through a lot that, I mean, physical pain, uh, he was persecuted, all kinds of stuff. But he says, starting in verse 6 of chapter 12, he says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool. So he's saying, I, I could boast because I've got lots of things that happened to me. I could, I could tell you my resume of suffering that I have, and I would not be a fool for doing that. I would be speaking truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. So he doesn't want to boast, really. He's saying, look, I could say it, but I'm not going to. I don't want anybody to think of me as you know, more than they ought to be thinking of me. He said, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassing great revelations. So Paul's been given a lot of stuff from God. He, he is the conduit for these 13 books that God's left to us. And so it's been left there. And so he, he could be seen or elevated because of that. But he's saying, no, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want that. He says this, he says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, and here's how Paul survived this difficulty. Here's how Paul overcame this difficulty. This, is, this next phrase that I'm about to read is, is the counterintuitive nature of the spiritual journey. We often think that uh, I get spiritual, I, I, I start coming to a place like this on a Sunday morning and I start adding some, some, uh, some things to my life and so it's going to make my life better. And so we, we, we think of it as, a, as something like this and Paul is going to sort of burst that bubble when he says, my grace, this is God speaking to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for your power is made perfect in weakness. Your power, Paul's gifts, abilities, eloquence, Ability to write, all that kind of stuff. All, all, all that Paul possesses, God says to him, is made perfect in weakness. See, he was given this thorn in the flesh. So we're not, not sure what it was. Some people think it was a weak stomach, that, that Paul just had this, uh, uh, this bowel thing his entire life. Maybe he was running to the toilet all the time. We don't know. And, you know, for us, that's not bad. The toilet's maybe, what, a uh, hundred feet out the door here. You can, you can be near one. But for them, it's, that's, that's not a good thing. If you've ever traveled internationally, especially in any, any rural places, uh, even if you have a bathroom near, it's not the best experience in the world. 
I mean, if you've never experienced a long drop, especially if you have something going on that needs to come up this way, all you need to do is stick your face near that hole. It comes up. Trust me. It comes up. It is a gagging experience. And Paul lived with that his entire life, potentially. So he had this, what he calls a, a thorn in the flesh. Uh, he also suggests it was a messenger of Satan. But God says to him, he says, look, my power, what I want to transform you, what I want to give you, what I want to invest in you, what I want to make alive in you, my power is made great in your weakness, not in your strength. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. I would like to suggest that from that passage, from that experience of Paul, we get probably the most important tool in parenting. And I know you're probably thinking, is he smoking something? <laughs> I mean, it's legal. Is he going to the gummy store now? And, you know, it's like, what's up with that? Now? Your most vital tool as a parent is self-awareness. Being self-aware. I don't know how many parents I have seen, especially at athletic events, and, and now there's this major push at, at kids' athletic events. Going in on a Friday night when we went to another grandchild's baseball game, there is this big, huge sign. It's a letter from a child to a parent. And it's written in a child's handwriting and it says, Mommy and Daddy, please don't yell at this game because when you yell, it makes me feel this way and that way and all this kind of stuff, you know. And uh, I don't know how many times. I remember once when I was uh, coaching and I had, um, there was a, like, it was a small children, five-year-olds, and, and I watched a dad. I mean, he was red in the face and he was just like foaming at the mouth, screaming at his five-year-old as he was playing basketball. And I'm thinking, dude, you are doing irreparable damage to your soul and to your child's soul because you don't know yourself. You, you're, you're, you haven't really faced the idea that self-preservation is one of the, the most coveted things that humans have. We, we, we have this idea that, that there is something we have to preserve. It's a me. I gotta preserve it. And, and so there's this, 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 this cover, or this wall or whatever we put up and, and we stand on one side and we're going to preserve it. And, and there are a few questions. If we want God's power 
to be made strong in our weakness, then we've got to acknowledge our own weakness. You got to discover it. You got to explore it. You got to figure out what it is. And the way we do life, there is no time to contemplate those kinds of things. There's too much to scroll on my phone for me to be thinking about my weaknesses, right? I just want to, you know, whether you use your thumb or if you, or you, you a thumb scroller or your finger scroller. Maybe it's down in your finger scroller, if it's up or your thumb scroller. There's too many things in my DVR, too many new things to watch. You know, I got Night Agent, I got Diplomat, I got Succession. I got to watch, you know, I got, I got all these things. I got to answer my phone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> There's so many things in life that cause us to fail to do the things that are most important, and that is one of those things is the contemplate. What is it I'm trying to prove? So many parents have their own identity bound up in their child. And they are going to prove that they can be competent parents. Trust me, there is no such thing as a competent parent. The only people that are competent in parenthood are those who haven't had kids yet. I mean, you can talk to them, they're just eloquent, especially even if they're pregnant, you know, and they're reading all these books, you know, and they're going through all this kind of, they're, they're going to be the perfect parent. I mean, I, I have a truckload of sticky notes to donate to you because your kids are going to be writing sticky notes about how you aren't the perfect parent. They're going to be sitting in groups describing you later on in their 20s and their 30s. It doesn't matter what you do or how smart you are. I wrote my master's thesis on parenting. I should have owned stock in 3M for the number of sticky notes my kids had to buy. You see, if you don't answer the question, what am I trying to prove? And if you, that doesn't regularly become a tool in your life to evaluate the emotions that you're having and, and the actions that are created by that, those emotions, then you probably, you probably are not using one of the best tools available to a parent. Being self-aware. Second question. What am I trying to hide? Not only what am I trying to prove, but what am I trying to hide? I mean, let's face it. If, if you see beyond a certain level in me, you're going to pull out your phone and start reading your email because you're thinking, that guy's not worth listening to. He's a mess. He's just a freaking mess. We all have this, this wall up that we, I don't want you to know things about me because if you knew things about me, what you would think about me, my acceptance, your image of me, all that kind of stuff, we, we, we bear this idea of an imposter. Every one of us. And the imposter syndrome is, is, is part of that battery drain of life that just takes us down and down and down. And so we have to project, we have to 
put energy into that imposter that, to keep that image up. What are we trying to hide? What am I trying to prove? What am I trying to hide? Those are questions that ought to be a part of every parent's repertoire on a regular basis. In every moment, succeed or fail, there ought to be a, an evaluation, a, a post-mortem of, of that and, and asking, what was I trying to prove there? What was I trying to hide? Maybe a third question. What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid of losing? You know, it's, uh, as a parent, um, I struggled because when my kids were little, I had control. I was bigger than they were. I could physically threaten them if I wanted to. You know, I, 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 was, I was in charge. I had things I could keep from them or, or not do it. And as they grew up, slowly but surely, I lost control. And as you lose control, you get frantic inside. The stakes get higher as kids get older. And so the emotion inside us and so what we're afraid of losing generates energy inside us. That's us trying to find power inside ourselves rather than, as Paul talks about, God's strength is made perfect in his weakness, acknowledging the fact that you're losing control, that, that you don't have the levers to pull anymore. And because you don't have the levers to pull, oftentimes it makes us do stupid things. It makes us look weird. It makes us do things inside our homes, say things inside our homes that we're hoping that the nanny cam is not on. <laughs> Thank God there were no nanny cams when I was raising my kids. So three questions for self-awareness. What are you afraid of losing? What are you trying to hide? What are you trying to prove? If you want God's strength to be made perfect in your own weakness, then self-awareness becomes a tool to activate that in your life. Regularly looking at your emotions and, and what, what is the energy inside you and evaluating that energy to understand what is it doing? Is it, is it truly... God, is it truly spirit? Is it truly Jesus? Is it, is it truly the Trinitarian God inside me shaping me to be something that he wants me to be? Or is it just me? I'm afraid of losing something. I'm trying to hide something. I'm trying to prove something. It's my strength showing its imperfectness in my weakness instead of God's strength showing its perfection in my weakness. Last thing. Two tools, I said, I think. One, the last tool is, is simple. And it comes from that passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, it, it's, it's love. 
when you donate your biology to create a child. You make a social contract. You make a commitment. It's why the Bible says that, that sex outside of the covenant of marriage is wrong. Because God created these kids to come alive inside this covenant relationship where first of all, a husband and wife love each other in irrational ways. Oftentimes, when weddings are performed, especially if I do them, I use Ephesians 5 for the husband, and I say, look, dude, you're doing something highly irrational today. In fact, if you want to stop now, you can. It's not official yet. But you're standing in front of people to make this official. You're standing in front of, of, of a group of people and you're saying you're going to commit yourself to, to this girl and, and, and you're going to commit yourself to live as her husband. Not her boyfriend, you know, not, not her fiance, not her husband. And biblically, that takes on a whole new characteristic because Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Jesus Christ loved his church. Jesus died for you and I when we were yet his enemies, the Bible says. And so God's saying, look, you're, you're to love this, this girl even when she's your enemy. And trust me, you know, I always tell them, look, today she looks beautiful, but there'd be a point when she doesn't, either physically or emotionally. You're not going to like her. But today, you are giving up the choice to not love her. That choice goes away because you're saying to this crowd, you're saying, I will love you no matter what. A kid deserves to grow up in that kind of environment. When a kid experiences that kind of relationship between a mother and father, it does something secure inside them. It builds an identity that cannot be built in any other way. And so when Jesus comes along in their life and Jesus says, I love you in this way, it sets them up to experience a divine kind of love that they can never experience any other way. So a kid deserves a mother and a father who loves one another irrationally. That's what God built us for. That's what God made to happen in this world. And by inference, then, the kid deserves to be loved that way. So many times in my life, I told my children, there is nothing you can do to make me not love you. I wanted them to hear that on a regular basis. And trust me, they put me to the test. <laughs> there were many, many times when my verbal commitment, my volitional commitment, and my internal world did not match up. But I stayed true to my commitment. I wanted them to know that there is nothing Nothing that no matter what, no matter how dark, no matter how 
terrible their lives got, no matter how twisted their lives got, no matter what, I wanted them to know they could always come home. That picture in Luke 15 is so transforming to me when we find Jesus telling a story about a father whose son has taken half of his fortune and run off and wasted it and comes home a shell of a man. And the father is standing there expectantly waiting for that son to come home. That's the kind of love that a kid deserves to grow up in. Those two tools are radically important in a kid's life. An adult, a mom and a dad who are growing in their own self-awareness and are learning to seat their identity, not in their own strength, not in their own wisdom, but in the wisdom and the power of God so that his strength is made powerful and perfected in our weakness as we discover our own weakness and and we leave that out and, and second, in an atmosphere of irrational love. When a child grows up with adults who are growing in self-awareness in an atmosphere of irrational love, there's no better launching pad than that in their lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us what this means. Um, You loved us in this way. You've given us uh, the confirmation that, that, that we can explore our own identity, however ugly it might be, and yet your love never changes. Father, you've known us, and you know us at our worst. And you love us in spite of that. And so we're asking, Father, I'm I'm praying for those of us in this room or online today that that self-awareness might become a tool that we put in our toolbox and use on a regular basis. Give us the courage, Father, to, to write those three questions out. What am I trying to, what am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to prove? What am I trying to hide? Those, those questions become uh, great daily tools for us to look at, at every human interaction and just regularly have a, a gauge on where is the energy of life coming from? Is your power being perfected in our weakness or are we living behind that wall of self-preservation? Help us, Father. Help us to have the courage to trust that your love will be there even when we see our weaknesses because that's what we're afraid of. We're afraid of being known and not being loved. So we ask for the courage to be known to ourselves and to experience your love. And Father, for the families in here, whatever shape they take, whatever point that they capture this message, may it be a point where they begin to realize that, okay, 
we're going to try to figure out what this irrational love looks like. First for ourselves and then for one another and then for these little arrows that you've given us to aim in life. Father, help us not be accidental in living. Help us to be intentional. To intend to let your truth, your love, your instruction invade our lives. And we're thankful. We're thankful that you are the the consummate parent. Father, you love us. You tell us the truth. You don't spare the harsh reality, but you're also not spare with your love. And we're grateful for that. And this morning, because it all gets wrapped up in Jesus, it's all something we can see, we can, we can really observe, is when Jesus left heaven and came to earth and embodied who you are and left us with this great wisdom. And so we're thankful. And we bring these requests, these pleas to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.